Today's episode is with Michael Stevens. This guy is fascinating. We had such a good time. He is the creator of Vsauce, which is a network on YouTube that has over 15 million subscribers. It is the dominant educational network on the internet. Millions of children and adults tune into this network to learn about many topics, including social psychology, artificial intelligence, space exploration, and more. He is, um, Michael is currently traveling. He's on the road with um, Adam Savage of Mythbusters on their show. They're doing a tour called Brain Candy, and there's going to be another tour in 2018, which I found out they're coming to Atlanta, which will be very exciting. So Michael has a new show. It's actually season two of his show, Mindfield. And I watched a couple episodes today, and it is just fascinating, you guys. If you are into science, you're going to love it. If you are just out to be entertained, you're going to love it. It's so incredible, some of the things that Michael and his crew are covering on Minefield. So it's a partial binge, meaning that when this podcast airs, you guys that are subscribers are going to have access immediately to four episodes, and then there will be four more coming down the pipeline. It's on YouTube Red. And with this new season, with the help of the world's top scientists and research labs, Michael explores mind control, the power of suggestion, the effects of technology on the brain, on memory, and even he, Michael, experiences some temporary brain damage. So that's interesting for sure. So you guys, again, it's on YouTube Red, Mindfield. Check it out and enjoy this episode with Michael Stevens. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's guest is Michael Stevens. Hi, Michael. Hello. Great to be here. Good to be here. So where are you right now? I am in Kansas City, the town of my birth. Um, I'm I'm in the dressing room at the Midland Theater where I've got a show tonight with Adam Savage. We're traveling with Brain Candy Live. It's like my YouTube science show, but on a stage. We get to bring people up and get them involved. And it's been a blast, but it's a different city every night. So keeps me busy, but it also shows me the world. So Adam is with Mythbusters. That's right, yeah. I can't say that word. Mythbusters. <laughs> Mythbusters, yes. So what have you what have you learned from being on tour? I mean, that has to be something new, not being a rock star and all, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's completely new. I had no idea how it would work. I didn't know where I'd be getting my meals. I didn't know how I'd be sleeping. I didn't even see the tour bus until the day we left after the first show. And I have learned that, man, there are incredibly talented people on this planet. I already knew that, but <laughs> our crew is like a staff of what Adam calls uh, – all competence. They're competent at anything you throw at them. That's awesome. Where do you find these people? (laughs) Uh, I think that it's just through trial and error. You know, Adam had been touring for years before we got together. And so he knew, and the production company Magic Space knew how to make this work. That's awesome. So what is Brain Candy? It's like a tour of science? How does that work? Yeah, it's a tour. uh, It's like a two-hour long science show that's basically if your science teacher had a Las Vegas budget. We are 
predominantly doing demonstrations that involve air, many of which at a smaller scale you could do at home. And that's the real beauty of it. There's no artifice. There's no feeling of we're the professionals and science is only for people with big brains. The whole point of the show is no matter who you are, you can think scientifically, you can investigate and experiment and be a better and better critical thinker. Yeah. So how did you, I mean, did you love science as a kid? Yeah, I did. I, you know, I wanted to be a physicist when I grew up and I really looked up to scientists, but also science communicators, people like Bill Nye yes. and Paul Zaloom, who played Beekman on Beekman's World, Mr. Wizard, all of those people. Mr. Wizard. Right? I have yeah. not thought about Mr. Wizard in a hundred years. Oh, I loved Mr. Wizard. So fantastic. <laughs> yes. um, and you can find some clips on YouTube. It's just there's a great history of science communication. I think even, you know Carl Sagan and uh, Feynman were both similar, you know, but they even had the credentials of like I'm actually you know someone who won a Nobel Prize or you know things like that. Right. So my son really loves science, and my daughter doesn't, and I didn't grow up really being very sciencey, and my husband did. So what age do you think you can like look at a kid and go, okay, science, not science, science, not science. Or do you think everyone is a scientist? <laughs> yeah, everyone is. Like okay. if we weren't, our species wouldn't be alive and thriving today. Um, but there's, there is a difference between science as a way of knowing and science as a classroom topic. Um, okay. Because when you're in school, you're learning so that you can do well on tests. And that's very important. And um, it's significantly different, though, from curiosity in our day to day lives sometimes. And it's also very different from the sort of recreational fun that we can have when we learn. Um, and that's the recreational learning I think of is just, it's just fun. It's like listening to music. You're just enjoying it and you're finding new ways to express who you are as an individual, not just kind of learning all in mass in a group in a kind of competitive setting where you're going to be compared with other students and graded. Um, and that's, that's just one facet of, of learning, but there's a much larger one. And so I really try to pull in as many people as possible to show them that science is not just for a certain kind of person. And sometimes we think that we see in popular culture that, you know, scientists are the bird brain, super smart, you know, geniuses who have no social skills. And I don't think that does a good service to what science is. And so I'm out there to be like, no, we're all scientists at heart. Yeah. Um, my husband is a, definitely a scientist and his nickname is the expert. <laughs> Not a bad nickname. Because he knows everything. You've got, you got to know people like that, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about, um, the educational network that you created that has over 18 million subscribers. Yeah. Vsauce. So Vsauce. I created Vsauce, uh, seven years ago and I, through the course of working on YouTube, ran into a lot of talented people, and, and two of them are now hosting Vsauce 2 and Vsauce 3, which are channels that cover different aspects of the universe. Um, Vsauce 2 covers history and what it means to be a human, especially a social animal. And then Vsauce 3 covers the science of the stories that we create, comic books, movies. Um, and it's a, it uses fiction as a launching point for learning. Uh, we also have a Do Online Now Guys channel, which is just us 
running through our favorite websites twice a week because we're researching it on the internet all the time. And we felt like we, we should be curating this stuff to the world. Right. So can I tell you a secret that's kind of embarrassing? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Space freaks me out. Yeah. Well, no, that, that's not embarrassing. That is, that's honesty. If it, it doesn't freak you out, you don't know out. about it. Like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want, I just want to stick my head in the sand. And when they ask me if I want to go to an IMAX movie about space, the answer is no. <laughs> it's terrifying. Like how, how do I get from being terrified of these things we don't know and being more curious? I mean, is that something that you've encountered? And, and I know that's what you're kind of doing with, with your shows is kind of normalizing many things that some of us don't know or we're fearful about. Yeah, well, I say embrace that fear. If you're scared of it, you're doing it right because the more you learn, the more you will realize how little you know and how small you are. Yeah. It's a bittersweet kind of thing because in the in one sense, it's very humbling and it's very inspiring. But in the other sense, it is really invigorating because it means that we fit into this universe and we have the tools to learn about it, but there are some things we can never know. Um, we have shown that some things cannot be proven and that's frightening. Um, but it's also, um, I don't know, there's something about it that is really vital to living a life that is, you know, uh, worth it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Worth it. <laughs> Where do you fall on, and that's probably not the right term, but artificial intelligence. I know that is something you guys cover on Vsauce. Like how, how far does that expand as far as what you guys work on with, like on your Vsauce network with artificial intelligence? Well, you know, I did um, an episode in Mindfield last year where we looked at our relationships with technology especially as AI increases, it, it's more and more difficult to see a fine line uh, or, a, or a, a, a bold line, rather, between humans and computers. And is that something that we should be nervous about? Um, I mean, all we know is that historically, new technology has always frightened us. And I think it's healthy. And I think that the voices that are scared should be amplified and should be listened to. But it's always turned out okay, um, remember that Plato himself was terrified of the written word. Right. He told us through Socrates that writing was a plague, that as soon as students learned how to write, they wouldn't use their brains. They would just write things down and they wouldn't have to remember anything anymore. But as it turned out, the written word has been fundamental to our civilization. And I think we have to, in some ways, embrace the fact that the way humans are today is fleeting. And the way humans were a thousand years ago, a hundred thousand years ago was incredibly different. And that's the way it is. Um, but it also means we have a, a lot of responsibility and we need to be concerned. But at the same time, I'm not terrified and frozen because of it. Right. Well, you mentioned Minefield. So let's talk about that a little bit. This is your show on the YouTube Red Channel. You're starting season two actually releases. Um, well, we'll have released yesterday when this podcast airs. So, yep. um, okay. So <laughs> I told you this before we got started today, but I couldn't sleep last night. I woke up at 4.30, came downstairs and started watching 
um, season one, watching some of your episodes. And the first one is called Isolation. And I want you to tell everyone about it. But it freaked me out, dude. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what is the premise I, I still can't believe I did that. Um, I can't either. Yeah. I, f- I felt. Th- okay. So let's tell everyone what it is. And then I, w- like, I want to point out some of the things that really hit me. <laughs> okay, sure. So, you know, our brains are constantly absorbing information. And I compare them to sponges. Um, they are hungry. They want information. It's how we survive. And the opposite of being stimulated is, you know, being, well, starved of stimulation, being bored, right? There's, there's this, this emotion that kind of pushes us away uh, from nothing to stimulation. And what I wanted to do is see what would happen if I was isolated for 72 hours, so three days. Um, I was locked inside a tiny room, like a jail cell, and it was completely white. It had nothing in it uh, but a bed and a toilet and uh, food, uh, a liquid that contained all the nutrients I would need for those three days. So no meals were delivered. There were no windows, no clocks. I had no way of knowing what time it was. That's why the food and water was already in the room. I didn't want there to be deliveries that might give me clues as to what time it was. Mm. And I had nothing to do but stare at the white walls. And I did this for three days. And uh, I was observed by a psychologist and a medical doctor uh, before, during, and after. And we learned some quite surprising things. Um, we thought that when I came out of isolation, my, my cognitive facility faculties would have been dulled. But instead, they were sharper than ever. My reaction times were faster. My ability to memorize sequences and numbers was larger. Um, but I, I blame that on adrenaline. When I mm. came out, my body went from a state of no stimulation to immediate panic because I had all these people around me. I had cameras on me and that made me hyper-focused. Uh, I don't remember much of those three days because there's not nothing to remember. You know? <laughs> because nothing happened. <laughs> my brain didn't have much to put into the memory files. And so looking back on it now, it feels like I spent about 30 minutes in there. Wow. One of the things that really struck me about the episode is when you said that boredom is often defined as a less intense form of disgust. Yeah. I was like, whoa. So we will avoid boredom at all costs. Yeah. Um, You know, disgust is a, you know, healthy emotion. It makes us avoid things that might make us sick, that might hurt us. Um, And in a way, boredom does that too. It pushes us away from environments that aren't stimulating, that don't help our brains grow and mature. Um, Of course, for instance, children are drawn to screens because screens are sometimes the most stimulating things around them. Um, But there's something to be said for boredom. There is something to be said for being alone with nothing but your own thoughts. And that's scary. Um, but unless you confront yourself in that way, I don't think you know yourself like you can. Watching your family watch you go through this process and the 72 hours in the box yeah, was really intense. Did you, did you know that that would have that impact? No, I didn't. And neither did my family. My mom thought that she would just come in and see me and be kind of like, disappointed in how boring it was. But instead, (laughs) she got really concerned because I, you know, 
I, it looked like I was deteriorating and I did feel really removed from reality. I had a moment where I became really delusional um, because I could no longer separate my dreams from reality. Both occurred in that same room. And I couldn't tell if the experiment was over or not. I didn't know if people had come into the room or not. And I didn't know how to understand time because there, there was no, um, there were, there were, there was nothing to look forward to. I didn't know how long I had until, you know, my next meal should be taken. And I didn't know how long ago I had done certain things like laid in bed or laid on the floor or paced. And so it just was like, I would imagine a cockroach lives just every moment is what's happening now. And there's no past and there's no future. There's just this moment, but also that means there's no death. There's no end because there is no timeline. It was quite confusing and eerie and being isolated from people being isolated from, uh, you know, Twitter, that was all pretty easy. It was only three days. The difficult part was being isolated from the earth, from the cycles of day and night, from any kind of clues that would tell my body that time was passing. Right, because the lights were all on, all the time. They were on the entire time. I could not turn them off. So what was the most surprising thing that you learned about the time with yourself? Um, I learned how to meditate. You know, I learned how to uh, dream while awake. Listen to what my brain is doing when it's idling. And be entertained by that. Uh, you're forced to kind of relive a lot of memories that your brain is processing or continuing to process. And it can feel like a dream. It's, it's a, re a really strong daydream. I mean, we've all had that experience. But if there are no distractions from it, you're just kind of stuck listening to people in your memories saying things that they've said or things they didn't say. That's what makes it feel like a dream. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've, I'm definitely a guinea pig. And minefield. Um, in this second season, we've gone more in the direction of emerging hypotheses and new discoveries. So we worked with um, research um, departments at universities and basically just approached them and said, look, we have resources and we can help you. We've got Michael that you can do anything you want to. What's your <laughs> We have this human uh, guinea pig. You could as a human prod. guinea pig. Yeah, this this guy will sign any waiver you give him, and uh, it's a it's a TV show. So you know, as we find out in the first episode, we've got different rules, and that br brings up some ethical concerns. Um, how do you study the mind and not damage it at the same time? Oh, yeah. um, so in that first episode, I I spoke with Pepperdine's ethics review board. Um, I spoke with um, the ethicist Peter Singer about devising an experiment that would be potentially quite traumatic. Um, but in my mind, I felt like the benefits outweighed the costs. Uh, what I had to do, though, and what I wanted to do was convince researchers that that was the case to get their approval. And how did that go? <laughs> well, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about the scientific method and about how to um, put together a experiment or study in a way that con that considers all of what could go wrong. Um, specifically in this first episode, we subjected people to the famous philosophical dilemma of the trolley problem. We've heard this before as just a question on paper. Um, if a train is going down a, a track and um, it's out of control and it's about to hit five people, 
down on the track, but you're standing next to a lever and pulling that lever would switch the train to a different set of tracks that only one person is on. What would you do? Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, you assume you're going to switch it to the one, but you, you get frozen, right? Well, that was the hypothesis, right? That in reality, when you ask people on paper, on a survey, they say, obviously, I'll pull the switch because that means only one life is lost and not five. But when you put people in the actual scenario where they believe that this is really happening, where they believe that lives are really at stake and pulling that lever means that they have taken an action that will end someone's life, what will they truly do? And I needed to figure out for for Mindfield, how do we uh, do this? Should we do this? How do we make sure that people really believe in the stakes? Um, And how do we make sure that we don't harm people? Because that's not the goal. The goal is to learn about human nature and moral psychology. Right. So <laughs> that that's a lot to think about. Oh my gosh, because yeah. you're like, how do I not damage these people? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so we worked with a, uh, a clinical psychologist who helped us screen applicants. And we provided on-site counseling in case anyone was really bothered. And we made it very clear in the debriefing sessions that, you know, the way you behave is not something that you should feel one way about or another. You know, it's not your fault if you aren't happy with how you behaved. And it's not necessarily something to celebrate if you are happy. You know, we are still learning about the mind. And by participating, you have helped us do a lot of things that have practical benefits. How do we train people to respond in times of emergency? Um, How do we train people to become more heroic in their day-to-day lives? And what should we or what can we learn from an experiment like that to help us with AI? If, If artificial intelligences are making more and more decisions, especially when it comes to autonomous vehicles and autonomous technology, how do we program them to make decisions when lives are at stake? We also discuss whether that's even a concern because many um, uh, people who work in AI understand what's at stake, but also know that getting too hung up on philosophical concerns that involve extremely rare circumstances can sometimes just hold back innovation. Right. Because in, in the case of the trolley, AI would just choose the one, like the switch. <laughs> well, would they? Should it? Or I don't know. I guess it depends on who's. But then the philosophical is out of the question. Uh, yeah. And so should we ask ourselves what we would do and then program oh, yeah. AI to do what we would do? But if that's not even what we actually would do, I mean, to be to be totally honest, AI would be programmed to not allow the train to get out of control in the first place. Right. Okay? That's really what an autonomous vehicle will do. If it has to make a decision between hitting five people in a street or swerving onto the sidewalk to hit one, the answer that you get from the um, uh, people designing these cars is that the car will simply throw on the brakes and try to turn what would be a fatality into a twisted angle, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important to point out. So this episode was not about, oh my gosh, should we be scared of autonomous vehicles? Because I don't think that we should. Instead, this episode was about why... Do we have an instinct to freeze when a crisis emerges? 
that was what I was fascinated by. What benefit does that have? Why have we evolved through natural selection to be a creature that can become a deer in the headlights? And is that something that we should be terrified of? Is it something we should fix? Is it something that we should embrace? Um, and yeah, there, there are a lot of really heavy, important questions involved in what can seem like just a sort of uh, prank, but it's not a prank. It is a psychological experiment. Do you think the fight, flight, or freeze nature, do you think everyone has the, the freezing ability or, or are some people just going to fight or flight? Well, some people um, are going to be more inclined to one or the other. What is fascinating is how we justify our actions after the fact. Everyone who participated had elaborate narratives for what was going through their mind. And I don't know if that is really what went through their mind or if it's what hindsight is telling them must have been going through their mind. But every person is very, very different. And they come up with very different excuses and justifications for what they did, um, all of which makes sense. Um, but uh, in general, if you run thousands of people, you'll find some predictable behaviors. Um, and, you know, we, we discussed these in the episode. Um, I, I worked with a psychiatrist who, who was there with me on site. And we talked about how come this person did what they did and this person did something else. And a lot of times it comes down to who you are, how you've grown up, your cultural background, what expectations you think there are on you. And um, uh, in a later episode, totally different episode, we worked with Philip Zimbardo, who ran the infamous Stanford prison experiment, where oh, students yeah. at Stanford became so violent towards one another that it had to be called off. You know, he studied what makes people turn evil for decades. And recently he's shifted to what makes people good, what makes some people ready to be heroes? And can we train ourselves and, and everyone to behave in that way? Because he couldn't stand looking at evil anymore, probably. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he realized that in all of these circumstances where evil emerges, whether it's Abu Ghraib, whether it's the Stanford prison experiment, there are also heroes. There are people who stood up and spoke out. There are whistleblowers. There are people who said, um, in the case of his Stanford experiment, it, it, it was his now wife. She told him, I'm going to leave you if you continue this experiment. And he resisted, but then realized that he had also become part of the experiment and he needed to do the responsible thing and stop it. So what led her to do that? And that's what he's studying now. And now he's got a whole heroic imagination project where he trains people of all ages on how to be heroes. That's awesome. So one of the statements that I saw in one of your episodes was challenging the old adage of he who travels fastest travels alone. Yeah. So can you give me some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I always believed that, you know, I felt like other people would just slow me down, right? If, if a bunch of friends decide, hey, let's go get some burgers. I'm just going to go get the burgers now because I'll get them sooner. <laughs> and <laughs> and that, uh, that can make some sense. But the, the second half of that famous adage is that he who travels with others travels the furthest. Right. And only by working together, by taking advantage of our cooperative instincts and our social nature, can we achieve what we've achieved so far. So the four episodes that are now available – 
Um, they're binge worthy, man. I mean, you can watch, 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 watch. You got four and then you've got four more in the pipeline, correct? That's right. Yep. Okay. So out of these eight, now we don't want anyone to not watch all eight, but which one of these do you feel like impacted you the most personally? I would definitely go with our study of the placebo effect. Um, we worked with McGill University in Montreal to study how nothing can have healing benefits. Um, the placebo effect, you know, we've all heard about before. You know, you give someone a pill that's really just a sugar pill. You tell them that it will make their headache go away, and it does. Um, well, the placebo effect is much richer than it might seem at first. Um, and specifically, what we did is we looked at the effect of neuroenchantment. That's the name that uh, they've given to the, the sort of power that neuroscience and brain scans and lab coats have on us. Um, we were able to use a scanner that is completely deactivated. It doesn't do anything. It's literally just a prop with some speakers that play noises. Um, <clears throat> we were able to use a tool like that to convince people that we could read their minds using a sleight of hand trick. And then we proceeded to use that technology to study how it could help children who have various behavioral and neurological disorders. Because in many cases, um, someone will reach a point where the next step in their recovery is going to come from within. It's going to come from them taking care of themselves, realizing that they don't need to spend resources on anxiety and fear and seeking help, but instead put those resources into healing themselves. We've mm -hmm. seen this in Siberian hamsters, okay? If, you, if, they, if they're injured or if they're sick and it's, they think that it's winter time, they will heal slowly because they need to preserve resources for physical survival. It's winter. But if you trick them into thinking that it's summer, they will heal faster. Wow. So if we can use a fake brain scanner to make people think that they're being taken care of, can we give their brains permission to focus on healing and not on worrying. And the results were really phenomenal. Wow. You can like sell these brain scanners. <laughs> well, the beauty of it is that this was a uh, open label placebo, meaning right. we didn't lie to anyone. Well, we lied to the adults, but to the children, we did not. To the children, we just told them this machine's off. We told them all this machine does is put a suggestion in your mind that you're going to get better. And because of all the computers and the scans and the fancy equipment and the lab coats, it really seemed hard to believe that nothing was going on. But at the end of the sessions, we explained that this was in you all the time. You don't need to come back here. Um, you just needed to feel like there were people who cared about you, who were looking out for you, and that good things could happen. That's incredible. So, Michael, this podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, which is the idea that we all have the same 24 hours in our day, but it's unless you're in a white room for 2072 and then you don't know how many hours you have, <laughs> but um, that we have the same 24 hours in our day. And what we do with those 24 hours is what leads to our greater health, happiness, and success. So what is something that you do on a daily basis that you feel contributes to you living your best life? Oh, man, I don't know. I hate giving advice, but I think that's, <laughs> that's the point. You know, embracing humility is something that we all 
are better if we do. Um, we don't know all the answers and we never will. Um, so not being afraid to admit that you'll, you're powerless in some circumstances, that you don't know all the answers um, is one of the most healthy things that you can do. Um, embracing that ignorance, but then confronting it with curiosity. Um, my whole career on YouTube is about, I don't know this answer. I'm going to read. I'm going to ask, ask experts. I'm going to try to learn what I can. Um, and that leads to a really rich experience. Awesome. Well, everyone check out Minefield season two on YouTube Red. And let's, when is Brain Candy? You guys have a few more shows, but then you're heading to Australia, right? Yeah, we've got six more shows. And then in January, we're doing five cities in Australia. And then in the spring of next year, we're doing more than 40 shows across the US and Canada. Oh, wow. Are you coming yeah. to Atlanta? Uh, you know, we might be. I can't even memorize. <laughs> You the can't list. memorize 40 shows. But Come on, Michael. com <laughs> has all of the cities listed and you get tickets there. But awesome. uh, it's it's just been a blast. Well, very good. Thank you so much for taking time. I look forward to binge watching the shows and following you and maybe going to see you when you come to Atlanta, hopefully next year. Atlanta, Georgia, Saturday, March 10th, 2018. Oh, yep, we'll I think be at I'm Fox in town Steve. that weekend. Oh, at the Fox too. Wonderful. That's, right. That's a good yeah. venue. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Michael. Thank you. Really appreciate it.